Welcome to Unusually Successful, a series of success stories from the upstate of South Carolina. Join your host, business coach and sales leader, Sean Dipple, and learn about the unique journeys that brought our guests to where they are today. This episode is brought to you by Home Run Coatings. If you are looking for a beautiful, clean, low-maintenance garage floor and a warranty that stands behind that claim, visit homerunCoatings.com or call 864-881-2500. Stay tuned to this episode for a special discount for all unusually successful listeners. We have Dr. Spence Taylor here on Unusually Successful. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here. So I hear you're affiliated or you're the managing director of Leaders in Health. Tell us about that. Yeah, Leaders in Health is a, um, it's a consulting firm, really what it is of uh, leaders that have been very senior executive leaders that have been in healthcare for their entire career are at sort of the last stages of their career and feel very strong that they need to give and would like to give back to an industry we sincerely believe needs leadership and could use leadership. And our, our vision is really to create sustainable voices of leadership in healthcare that advance local health care. And in the meantime, if we can contribute to advancing local health care ourselves as very veteran leaders, we will do that. So that's, that's us. And it's, uh, I guess I'm managing principal of the group and founding principal of the group. And I have a very talented team that, uh, that works with me. So it's been great. So you had mentioned before when we were talking that there's actually a shortage of leadership in the, in large medical organizations or? You know, I think that leadership in health, if you, not to get granular right out of the blocks, but I think listeners will, will appreciate this. There, there's really four foci in healthcare that are really, really important. Hospitals, where you go to get treated if you're sick and have an operation or whatever. Physicians, universities that make doctors, that's another fo- focus. And, and then the payers, the insurance companies. So if there's four major foci in healthcare the area that we think has the most deficiency in leadership is the physician portion of that foci, and and physician leadership is is the shortage. So so our passion has been, I think, promote leadership in all four facets of the of but but particularly where it's most deficient, Sean. We believe it's in the physician leadership realm. So yeah, I, I think leadership in general around the country, regard even outside of healthcare, is uh, I think totally been exposed by. The social media and and uh, you know the mob runs the leader more than the leader controls the team. It's just difficult not to pick up a periodical and talk that doesn't at least mention leadership as something that we need to focus. It's something we don't teach, and it's a passion of ours. So your group, highly trained professionals in medicine, in the business of medicine, and so you go around and coach leaders. We, teach those skills? We certainly have and can, and that's exactly what we do, and, and help develop. Um, and and in, in the in the um, interim, uh, perform, sort of perform and be the surrogate of leadership as needed for projects, if, it, if you will. It's been amazing because we are, this is the first time in my career that I've really been unencumbered by an organization. I don't really work for an organization, so the bottom line of an organization is not something that, that uh, I'm thinking about every day, or the, the care of a patient or the worry of, of, of the outcome of a patient, or I'm not really working for the university. Uh, so it's just pure leadership. And how, how can we help 
putting uh, all stakeholders around a central vision that's going to actually en- enhance local health care. So it's, it's been very, very fulfilling the last couple of years working with a variety of different organizations. And it's been a really interesting last two years, some really good clients and some good, uh, some interesting projects that we've been working on. It seems like the landscape of medicine or, or finding medical care has changed in maybe the last five, 10 years. I mean, it used to be that you go to a family doctor and, and maybe it was him and a couple of other doctors, a PA, but they owned that practice. Now it seems like you can't, I don't know that there do doctors that own their own business exist anymore. Yeah. So, so um, there, we believe, we, we believe that there needs to be a firm balance between those four components, the physicians and the physician leaders, the health systems and the health system leaders, the, the universities, university leaders, and the, the payers, the, the insurance companies. And, and there is a uh, sort of a transaction that, that goes on that's a healthy tension that actually looks after uh, and advances health care, and usually more locally than anywhere else. The, the, um, what has happened, and you're very, you know, if, you, if you feel that there's something out of whack, it really is out of whack. And there's, at this point right now, I think the corporatization of medicine is so palpable. And when I say corporatization, these massive companies, uh, usually right now, it's been healthcare systems, you know, our, uh, you know, Greenville Health System, which uh, I've worked with for, you know, most of my professional career, being a good example. What mergers that have, have, have sort of have, uh, have more of a multi regional strategy. Systems that have multi-state strategies, they're massive companies, and they and these massive companies have to look after the business that they have, and then physicians have become uh, a smaller commodity consumed by these businesses in most of these cases, and of course, the, what the 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 commodity that's left out of the equation is the patient. So the the doctor-patient relationship has been more and more usurped by either the bigger companies, whether it be payers. I mean, insurance companies are hiring doctors. Hospitals are hiring doctors. Universities hire doctors. And, and Sean, you're absolutely right. You're, you're feeling that, well, where are the, the doctors not own their business anymore? Who, who's looking after the voice of the patient? Because the, the, the true interface between you, the patient, and the healthcare system is that doctor. Yeah. If that doctor is working for a large university or looking working for another uh, large company, they're going to have split interest, if you will, yeah. um, you know, the, the good of the company that they work for and the good of the patient. So we, we just think that there needs to be, we think it's, it's just as inappropriate for a, a group of doctors to run roughshod over a hospital that it is a, a hospital run roughshod over doctors as it is a university run roughshod over a hospital. We just think there needs to be that balance. It keeps everybody honest. And we think that that's a, a real opportunity in leadership, actually, to enhance and get people to... Uh, appreciate what's going on. I think they feel it. As you notice it, they can sense it, can't put their finger on it. So a lot of our work has been with physicians in the last two years to, to wake physicians up. You know, it's, it's okay to step up and be independent. We've been doing a lot of work around that. How do you think that happened? I mean, obviously there was a point to where it was a transition. Is it that the hospital said, hey, if you're not under our umbrella, then you can't be associated with yeah. the hospital? Or It's a combination of uh, sort of the administrative bloat that is, that is American medicine. Uh, as you know, the American medicine is mostly run by, the, not necessarily run by, but funded by the, the federal government through Medicare and Medicaid, about 60, 65% of it, maybe up to 70%. Uh, only about 
15% or so is private insurance, and then the rest wow. of it is pretty much unfunded care. Yeah, I had no idea. Well, and then the, the federal government puts tons of regulation, that, you know, all well-meaning, you know, just like yeah. every government program, all well-meaning, and things that they feel like should be good, and, they, and it makes administrative burden more and more and more of an issue for health systems, more and more of an issue for doctors, payers, everyone. And small mom-and-pop Doctor practices very similar to you know the, the private pharmacy groups and, and pharmacists in the past or hardware stores if you will. It's really difficult. So so doctors are looking for a refuge, re, oh, okay. some place that they can park, take care of patients, and and it looks good. If a, if a company like a health system comes and says, "Look, we'll let you come. You can just practice medicine, and we'll never. That's that's perfectly. It's going to be great. You just focus on taking care of patients. Sounds good." But it does split the, their allegiance. I mean, it's, it, they are working for a company, and the company is paying them, and the company wants the company to be successful. And it makes perfectly good sense. But the doctors then have, have split alliances between that and the good of their patients at times. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what because you're Because they're being driven by the policy of the big business totally. now. Uh, yeah. Totally. Uh, you know, the great example is this, is COVID-19 hits. And the administrations of hospitals, insurance companies, what they're going to make a decision that we're going to close all the operating rooms. In 2019 or 2020 in April, that may have made great sense. I mean, yeah. I, you know, nobody knew what in the world was going on. Sure. Two variants later, two years later, administrators are still saying we're going to close operating rooms. In other words, they're saying we're not going to let you take your patient to our operating room and have care. So if John Dipple needed a knee surgery, and you were on a list. And I say, I'm sorry, the operating room's closed. And it's been two years now. It's, it's yeah. not like this thing snuck up on us. So the administration is making a decision about whether or not you're going to have surgery, which is just a, a great example of, of what, what happens. Uh, in the old days, the, the doctor would say, well, dog, this is, uh, if this operating room is closed, I'll go to another operating room. Mm-hmm. I'll go to another hospital. I've got my right. own operating room. Well, they'll have choice. The doctor has choice. The patient has choice. Now the doctor doesn't have choice. The doctor works for a company that's going to necessitate where that, that doctor practices medicine. Yeah. So that's what you're seeing. And, and um, the, the person that or the group that suffers from that is the patient, I mean, mm. in, that, in that particular instance. Yeah. So it sounds like business decisions are trumping doctors. We believe in some cases it is. And, and, and understand, integration— um, Integration between hospitals, insurance companies, physicians, universities are, are can be amazing. If uh, and I think I mentioned this before the interview, that my group, Leaders in Health, is the core nucleus of the leadership team that started the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, Greenville, which was the 136th allopathic medical school in North America. So this little leadership group really saw what it had to do to put different health systems, doctors, universities, from a leadership perspective together around a central vision, starting a medical school, which it would have never done if each of the ones had been left on their own. So, so the idea, it, it, it's integration is a good thing, and it can be a very positive thing. It can create things like medical schools. It can create enormous benefit for communities. But it can also, just like anything, get off the track one way or the other. I mean, yeah. doc- doctors take advantage of hospitals. That's just as bad as hospitals taking advantage of doctors or universities, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a transactional, healthy tension. Integration's good. But, but your point is a good one as well. Where we are now, the corporations run in medicine. Yeah. It just is. And leaders in health, part of your mission is to help facilitate 
where we were, you know, maybe a happy balance between where we are and where we were with the level of healthcare. Restore that healthy tension. Yeah. And, and it, and the casual in this, Sean, is, is local healthcare. It, it, that's what, you know, big companies are big companies and they're multi, you know, multi-regional companies. Yeah. And the casual is local healthcare. So if we stay focused on let's try to look at what's needed in the community, whether it's mental health services, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, Let's get sustainable voices of leadership that can drive local health care using the constituents of the universities, the health systems, other doctors, payers, and try to get back, restore the balance, the transactional give and take that created something like the University of South Carolina School of Medicine Greenville or, or many other type, types of uh, institutions like that. Well, that's interesting. It sounds like it's, uh, you can be a real advocate for the individual patient as well as those that have a desire to provide the health care and the necessary part of this, which is the business end of, of providing that health care. One of the motivations, we're, it's, a, it's an interesting group. We're, very, we're fairly senior. We're at the end portions of our career, and, and we could have easily folded up and said we're going to you know, pack it in and not do anything, but we really feel like we can give back. And we, and we don't think that healthcare is in a, in a very good place. There is not that healthy tension. There is not that transactional relationship that exists and makes things happen. And so our, our hope was to, to um, not pack it in and, and let's see what we can do to make things. And you're absolutely right. I, I took care of thousands and thousands. I'm a vascular surgeon, was um, uh, chair of surgery at uh, GHS for 12 years and recruited and trained many, many surgeons. So I was a teacher and a surgeon and a doctor and took care of lots of folks that, uh, in Greenville and in the upstate, as well as the business side of this thing. Our hope, goal, to help give back and see if we can maybe get the trajectory back where we think it needs to be. Let's talk about your past. Where did, where did you grow up and how did you decide to become a vascular surgeon? Well, it was interesting. I, I, well, I grew up in, I was actually born in Greenville, which sounds uh, not very that's unique. <laughs> That's very unique, right? But we moved when I was very young. I think I was probably three years old. We moved to Atlanta, Georgia. My father was in the corrugated box business, was an executive with, a, with Continental Can Company at the time, which has subsequently merged. And then we moved. We lived there for five years, lived to Chicago, Illinois in the 60s for, for five years, and then eventually came back to Columbia. And I went to high school in Columbia um, and then graduated from Clemson University in 1979. Went to medical school at MUSC. I had no idea what I wanted to be. I, I, I learned pretty quickly that one of the surgical specialists would, was one of them. I felt like surgery would be what I wanted to do. It ended up going into general surgery at MUSC. And vascular surgery was a budding young field. It's, it's blood vessel surgery. It's operating on bypasses and legs, your carotid arteries to prevent strokes. It's aneurysms in your abdomen. It's a very, it's a very niche and I remember at the time, this was probably in the 80s or, or probably uh, mid-80s, uh, being advised, well, look, if you are going to do vascular surgery in the future, you better go do a fellowship. And I, I said, uh, okay. So I ended up getting, doing a fellowship with Dr. DeBake in Houston and then went into the Air Force after that, which is the other part of the story. I'll never forget my father. <laughs> when I called him up and said, well, I've been admitted to medical school. He said, well, son, that's terrific news. He said, that's, that's kind of expensive, isn't it? How, how are you planning on paying for that? And I, yeah. <laughs> Good question. I said, well, I thought, Pop, you might. Well, I said, I'm not. You know, I'm not. So I ended up going into the Air Force, and I, I got an Air Force scholarship. So we spent probably four, a little over three and a half years at Wilford Hall in San Antonio which was, as a vascular surgeon, which then propelled me as a vascular surgeon and was recruited back to Greenville to start and help the, the residency training program here in 1992. So that's me in a nutshell. That's how we got here and why I'm a vascular surgeon, for, by accident mostly. Can you remember— 
your first desire to be in medicine um, and where that sprang from? You know, I was always science-oriented and loved science, but like people. I mean, I've, I, I've always enjoyed, I can talk to people and like people. And so, so you know, that, that limits you. You're not going to be a nuclear physicist. Usually they don't like being. And I remember I was very interested in biochemistry, but after a half a semester of, of intense biochemistry at Clemson, I said, I'm not going to be a biochemist. I'm not smart enough. <laughs> and then, uh, so to blend people skills with science, you know, there are very few fields, psychology, medicine, uh, dentistry, some, and, and medicine it tugged at me. And I think it was in college more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And, and then became passionate once you get into the tract and the feel of it. So you, you entered Clemson wanting to be just a biology major. And yeah, that's, and I, yeah. Kind of sprang so, from so, that. so, so, so it's, it's an interesting story. It, it, I went, actually, the story starts more than that. It started at the Citadel. I went to the Citadel two years. So this is the way, this is a true story. I went to the Citadel two years, and I, did, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was majoring in chemistry, and I took a biochemistry course at Citadel. And it was a great course, and I loved it. Man, just this is it. I want to be a biochemist. And the, the professor at the time <laughs> at the Citadel said, well, you know, there's only two places in America that have biochemistry undergraduate majors. I, one's Stanford, and one's Clemson. And I said, well, that sounds great. Sounds pretty cool. I yeah. said, I said, so I went, I told my father I wanted to transfer to Clemson. Now, interesting, I was on a scholarship and my dad said, well, why are you going to, you're going to leave me? I said, well, yeah, I want to be a biochemist, Papa. He said, that's, that's terrific. <laughs> okay. I'll pay for that. And then of course, then two years later, when I went to medical school, that's, it, it, that was the payback was, that's a, that's kind of expensive. How are we going to pay for So it's funny how life, you know, puts you in the trajectory, but the air yeah. force was a huge, uh, uh, a great experience for me. And, and I, you were a surgeon in the Air I Force. I was a surgeon in the Air Force. Gotcha. Was deployed in, in uh, a couple of theaters, Desert Storm, and then uh, the Panama. We took care of all the pa- casualties in Panama. When we, you know, I, I know everybody goes Panama, but there, there was a thing called Just Cause, which we invaded Panama because of the, I think it was General Noriega with the time. And, oh, yeah. And they had a gazillion injuries that we ended up taking care of mm. as vascular surgeons. So. It was very formative. The military was for me, for sure. So after you got out of the Air Force, where did you go? Went to Greenville. And yeah. so that's where we started this track. And I was a, a staff surgeon in 1992, became chair surgery. It was interesting. Looking back at leadership, Greenville had a ton of opportunity. Uh, it was just a very, very early, it was on a trajectory, amazing health system, the Greenville health system. But what it didn't have was, the, uh, was a single physician voice. It had multiple independent practices of medicine. The physician piece was was really, really deficient. And so I was recruited, to, to along with a couple of other people, Bill Schmidt and Children's, uh, some others that, that, were, that were in essence the, to, to try to organize the physicians in a way that it could work with the health system, again, back to integration, to do something really cool. In Bill's case, it was the Children's Hospital, which was extraordinary. We, we put together this, this, this physician group that ended up being what became known as the University Medical Group that, that was the basis for and the faculty for the medical school. So Chair surgery in 1998 up until the medical school in 2009, and then stepped down in 2010 to devote the entire, my entire attention to the medical school. And we had our first class, what, 2012? I was our first class and uh, became fully LCME accredited. Um, that's when you became a teacher. I was really a teacher, yeah. yeah. And were a, you teaching surgeons or just yeah, general medicine? Yeah, so, so, so we were from, from um, remember, in surgery, as a chair of surgery, we have four ch- uh, residents, chief residents a year that finished the five-year curriculum. So we were teaching surgeons already. And then we just added students to it. We were a branch campus initially at USC and then um, at University of South Carolina. Then when we did our full medical school, 
I was founding senior associate dean for the medical school and, and passed the baton as founding dean over to Dr. Yuki. Jerry Yuki was founding dean. And it was an amazing time for us. It was a, it was a great time. So, yeah, that was yeah, my teaching, teaching phase, which I kept doing all the way up till I, I saw patients all the way up till I left the system in 2019 was the last time I saw patients. Yeah. So, so it sounds like that you got into leadership early on in your career. You recognize this group of physicians did not have any real unified representation. And then let's face it. I mean, when you're a teacher, you're leading the Absolutely. next generation of surgeons. Without question. It was a, uh, and in every case on it was a little bit accidental. I mean, you know, there was a need for something to happen. And um, I was in the right place at the right time on multiple occasions and, you know, and, and, and uh, capitalized on things that I believed in and feel like, right, this just like what we're doing now. So mm-hmm. something we believe in and feel like needs to happen. And so, yeah, that it was uh, leading along the way, whether it be students, doctors, patients. I mean, I, I, leadership skills that people talk about and, and study and develop are, are incredibly helpful at the bedside. Because if you come to see me with an ailment, the oh, best thing I can do, I can't make you quit smoking. Mm-hmm. I can't make you lose weight. I can't make you, but I can lead you. I can, I, can, I can put you on a trajectory, tell you the right things. You know, I'll, I'll love you if you don't quit smoking, cause I, but, but we'll try to advise you. And, and in teaching doctors to, in medical school to have that relationship is not intuitive. I mean, these are really smart kids. They're most come from a science background and not a humanities background. Yeah. So, so, those, so, yeah, teaching was a big part of it, for sure. And taking the lead in that bedside manner and caring about the individual, not as necessarily a patient, but as another human being. It's a real issue. and I mean, it's a real challenge and a real deficiency we have in all of medical school training and teaching right now. You're absolutely right. Sometimes I've, I feel like the, the more intellectual or the smarter you are is sometimes it plays against the emotional and the relationship side. We would completely 100% agree with you. And we, we, when we put together the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Greenville, it was all about integration and it was about creating a different type of a doctor. You don't need to be the smartest, the most intellectually uh, gifted human being on the planet. You don't have to be a nuclear physicist to be a doctor. But, but uh, unfortunately, our system, you know, it's very competitive. And what do they do? They measure you by metrics that they uh, think they're important or that, that, that are usually intellectually motivated in, uh, metrics. And then you select, select these people a lot of times that are not people that you were, not, you know, the people that were in your fraternity house in, the, in college that had the most, you know, um, social skills sometimes make the best doctors. And we've, mm-hmm. we've learned that. But we, we, our system self-selects doctors that sometimes, you're right, that are not intuitively social. And, yeah. and you have to teach them and you have to talk about it and um, – and it's hard to teach. Sometimes it's these folks are very recalcitrant. They spent their entire lives gunning and being competitive, and and it translates over to uh, unfortunately to the side of to the bedside, which is not necessarily a positive thing at all. Yeah, in the different roles that I've had, just in business, of course, it's not life and death. Right. Usually, no one dies in copiers and right. <laughs> and printers and uh, and display. You know, office technology. But one thing that I have learned is that if you're going to lead someone. They need to understand and believe that you actually care about them as people. Totally. Empathy. There's so much written about leadership, and, and it was probably prior to 1996, not a lot about this, but there was Daniel Goleman that, that wrote about emotional intelligence. I think he published several books, but the one in 1996 comes to mind where they talk about empathy. They mm-hmm. talk about self-awareness. They talk about motivation. 
They talk about all the social and the soft skills that, that that's why, you know, the, the, the old adage, the C students run the world, you know, because they, they have the more of a balance between the intellectual IQ and some of these softer skills that, that Daniel Goleman would call EQ or, or emotional intelligence. And so I 100% concur. And medicine, I think we suffer from it. We suffer from the lack of, of that. And I think people talk about it. They understand it. They realize it. And, and we still have a long way to go, I think. Well, I want to talk about more of your individual accomplishments. But before we do that, let's take a break and hear from one of our sponsors. I'm especially excited about our sponsor for this episode because he was our first ever guest on the show. And now he's expanded his business portfolio with a second company driven by the same values that he discussed in that episode. That company was Curb Appeal Solutions, a soft wash service dedicated to clean homes and top-notch customer service. Now Brian moves into your garage with the same customer service now focused on beautiful, clean, low-maintenance garage floors that can be installed and cured in 24 hours or less. Their process uses both polyurea and polyaspartic coatings, which are five times stronger than epoxy, meaning no cracks or chips and no hot tire pickup. Also, unlike epoxy, this flooring system is UV-stable, which prevents yellowing over time. Most importantly, these claims are backed up by a 15-year worry-free warranty. All unusually successful listeners in the upstate of South Carolina receive a $100 credit. For more information, visit homeruncoatings.com or call 864-881-2500. So let's talk about your career at Greenville Health System. I understand you reached the top. I reached the top. It's an interesting story, and uh, I I, uh, attribute a lot of... um, Mentoring by Mike Reardon, who was the, 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 the chief executive officer that was hired uh, for, to run GHS, uh, I think about 2006, Sean, is when it was. And um, he really understood what we talked about in the first part of this, where there needs to be a very strong transactional voice where you're working with people but not for people. And so he embraced physician leadership. And he he put his arms around a few very uh, select small group of physician leaders, of which I was blessed to be one of them, and it devoted a lot of time around consciousness and conscious leadership, some of the stuff we talked about around emotional intelligence. Anyway, got to the point where we did the medical school. The medical school was a full-time gig. Uh, I finished and was in a, in a really interesting position because I'd worked myself out of a job, gave, mm-hmm. gave the, the deanship over to Dr. Yuki. And Mike, Mike uh, put me back in charge of the, all the physicians. We had, we had a large physician group that was employed, uh, and we worked very closely. And, and, and the decision was at that point, instead of being highly integrated, teaming up with the administration and with the, what if we're fully integrated? What if we're like the Mayo Clinic? What if we could take a physician leader, which typically is what happens in a place like uh, the Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic, and put a physician to be in charge of everything, and then and then team them up through a dyad relationship with administration, highly advanced in healthcare, and that's exactly what that's exactly what we did. So Mike stepped away to to really oversee the merger, which he was very committed to, to creating the scale that turned out to be Prisma Health, and and was successful in that, and then backfilled his position with me as and I was the first physician leader at Greenville Health System. So I would have never, by the way, applied for that physician position had I you know. Uh, 
he approached me and said, "We, you know, I think this is the right time for a physician leader, and we think you're the to the person." So I was flattered, but it, and probably uh, had a, a steep learning curve. But it was leadership to to your to people that that understand or listening understand leadership is not about being the most having the highest expertise. It's about uh, leading leaders who lead leaders who lead the process. It's about managing the pe- the coaching the people that that are, have the expertise to do it. And so I'd learned that and Mike had taught me that. And so it was fairly easy. It's simply to, you know, um, come to work and hire the right people and you hire a Greg Resnick to be your chief operating officer, according to Easterling to be your chief of staff, uh, you know, and, and, um, uh, good finance people around you and, uh, get them thinking about a single vision and, and putting the patient first. And that, that was, uh, that was how we did it. When you took over that position, what was your what was your vision for what you wanted to accomplish? We wanted full integration, and um, you know, meaning it, what is full integration? Full integration mean? would mean that there's the full integration, the healthy attitude, the healthy transactional relationship between the four components: payers, okay. universities. We 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 were going to optimize it, and felt like that if you had physician leaders uh, working so closely with with administrative leaders, working closely with university leaders, working closely with payers. That that the benefit beneficiary was going to be the patient. You could do alternative alternative payment models. You could do uh, so many things that would help patients and help the community. And that was our goal. That was our vision to 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 empower the physicians to voice of the physician as leaders, uh, working with administrators and just optimize. That was really the vision for this. If we even you know at the time it was an interesting time because we were we were really into the merger, you know, in, in, with Columbia. And, and there was talk of, well, could, could this model of having physician leaders really even be extended down into Columbia? That was an that was an Columbia was a different hospital totally system? Totally different system. It was Palmetto yeah. Health, great okay. hospital system, great people, yep. uh, but a little bit different, didn't quite have the physician integration that we did. And that was, that was, that was something that we were excited about maybe doing. And so that was the vision we had, and, and it was exciting and fun, and um, I learned a lot. It was a it was a great experience. It was a great experience. So, how long did it take you to to get some momentum? I'm because that that was kind of a a culture shift, right? It was a it was it, it and and the, then did you take over when when Columbia became a part of the group? When Columbia when Columbia came part of the group, they had the upstate, which I was the head of, and then right. the Midlands, and then what they ended up doing is blending both of them together mm-hmm. with with uh, with different leadership, which was. Uh, the board of trustees or board of directors felt was the best thing for the organization. I think it probably was, and and uh, from from directionally where they are. Yeah, I I think for me the leadership where I learned the most about leadership and what it takes to be a leader was the medical school. I mm-hmm. mean, and it was it wasn't just put your head down and bull through and make things happen. You know, and I think I think entrepreneurs or whoever listens or whoever may be listening. Uh, it's a la- it's about aligning stakeholders around a central vision and not being right. It's about trying to listen, be present, and understand that the the opposite of your stories is just as true as your your story. And everybody doesn't see the world the way you see the world, and you've got to appreciate that. And you got to listen to f- let other people have their say in order to accomplish something really, really great. Whether it's a, an entrepreneurial endeavor, whether it's a medical school. And I think by the time I got to uh, being president of GHS, I'd had that under my belt, and, and and the big, the big learning curve for me was the medical school. It, it was a huge time of growth for me because it was it, I wasn't just leading surgeons. You know, these surgeons are strong, bullheaded surgeons. You were having to deal with pediatricians and family doctors mm-hmm. and administrators and and professors of at, at universities as opposed to just hard nosed surgeons, and it was. 
it was a growth curve for me that was uh, that I could easily translate and put when I was president of GHS, working with nurses, administrators, not just doctors. Yeah, that that was that was uh, an exciting time for me, and I, yeah. I, I enjoyed my time with that. So, so you stopped practicing medicine at so, that time, no, or were you still practicing? I, I stay. I practiced medicine all the way up to when I left the Greenville, or where it was actually Prisma State Health Upstate in 2019. Mm-hmm. So, and. and Prior to that, you know, once you're president, you can't do spend eight hours a day in an operating room. Doing, yeah. You know, these long. So, yeah. so we limited it back to cases that I that I, in fairness to the patient. Sure. And I kept seeing. I saw clinic and saw all my old patients, and lot, oftentimes would let my partners operate on if they needed surgery, and and saw office literally every week. And and as a leader of the system, it was more to try to stay in touch with what's going on at the at the grassroots. I think the president should understand what the patients are up yeah. to and what's well, how the system's working in the clinic. I felt that very strongly. Yeah. And and so well, that, that was, kept you in touch. Oh, no, right? totally, yeah. absolutely. And you know, to get to the operating room, see yeah. how the operating room runs once a week. I'd operate on Fridays and do cases and sort of see. And it's a big company, and and GHS was a big company, but mm-hmm. to be able to see the. As, as the senior most leader, how the operating room runs and how people are treated and how patients are treated, I thought was invaluable for me. I was yeah. a, a major part of I my mean, leadership. Do, do most presidents of large health systems, can you find them in the operating room and can you find them, you know, as involved as you were? I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, for me, it worked and that's what I, I wanted to stay in touch. And I had a practice of medicine and I had, I knew people and, um, you look around. I'm trying to think. You have like Julie Freshlog, who's the CEO at Wake Forest. She's a vascular surgeon, and she still sees patients. I oh, think okay. it's a very healthy thing. Yeah. Obviously, if you're if you're um, not an MD, uh, you don't you know you don't you're not going to see patients and operate on them in the operating room. So so um, to be a doctor, to be an MD, and to be able to sort of penetrate and, and operate within all layers of your organization was a huge advantage. I thought. Sure. You yeah. know? And even being a professor of surgery, even in the medical school, so you you could. You you were at home in multiple multiple places at the bedside in a, in a in a boardroom uh, at a in a classroom um, you know even dealing with insurance companies so th- these were a huge advantage I think being a, an MD and being a leader and I think more health systems are more and more people understand than what physicians bring to the table in terms of leadership like this so yeah it was a huge advantage yeah I think it's interesting that throughout your career you've had a heart for the entire business and not just being the best vascular surgeon in the world, but you just were gravitated towards the big picture, even early on. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's a, a strength or a fault, but there's oftentimes um, sort of pushing to control the vision to something that you think is, is bigger, whether it be the medical school or a medical group or it's, it's been good and bad. A lot of time, you know, it's all or nothing. And so it's, it can be, uh, uh, it can accomplish a lot of great things, but at the same time, it's, and I, and I say that not that it's been great for me, but I'm trying to think from your listener's perspective, you know, you, you are what you do, I guess, to some point, and the more you can achieve is better. But but it's, it is a balance between your reputation and you want to make sure that you're doing the right thing and people understand that you're, you know, it, it's about approval and getting that. And it's also an accomplishment. I mean, you've got to be able to, to make dollars. If you're an entrepreneur, you've got to make it work. Uh, it's not all about achieving, but 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 achieving is been my major major motivators yeah. more so than anything else and on a large scale on a large I mean, scale a, yeah yeah there's a, I, I don't know that there are many people who would want to take on that level of responsibility 
It sounds daunting to me. Well, it it, it was incremental though, it, and it was never. It had, and I'm I'm dead serious. It had somebody said we're going to have a physician leader that in 2016 to lead the Greenville Health System, I wouldn't applied. I would not have. I said, well, that's terrific. I'll stick here and I'll be over. <laughs> good the, luck with that. Yeah, good luck. And I, <laughs> if the guy needs a, whoever it is, I'll I'll be the person's best friend and make yeah. sure that person is successful. And then was was sort of selected and chosen by Mike to to be that leader. So reluctant leadership, but at the same time. Um, I was confident that, that once we got sort of settled in that it was we were going to be successful, and we were. We were very successful yeah. for a few years we were there. So. so it sounds like he wasn't the only one who recognized your leadership skills because I understand you were nominated to lead a well-known organization uh, yeah. in the upstate. Oh, yeah. yeah. So th- this is uh, Clemson University, um, and this this was an interesting story. Aside, it was a a fun part of my life to go back and look at this, but I, I'll never forget it. it was President Barker. This was probably 2013, 2012. We just finished the medical school and, I, and I'd, I'd interface Sean with all of these people at the universities, Clemson, all the leaders at Clemson, several of the board members at Clemson, board members at Carolina. You just had to, I mean, it was aligning sure, yeah. multiple stakeholders to put the school together and it, we just finished it. And I was, I was, I was on in the free agent market. I was, they, I, they knew I was going to stay with the health system and somebody uh, wrote a letter and nominated me for the president of Clemson. I said, well, I'm not interested. I'm not going to do this. And then there was another letter. I said, so they called him and said, you've been nominated twice. And, uh, and at the time, um, I didn't know anything about being a uh, university president. Still don't, by the way, about being a university president. <laughs> but got a small group of people that said, look, well, this is something that, you know, Clemson is a passion of ours. All, every family member of mine went to Clemson. I went to Clemson. My wife went to Clemson. All my brothers went to Clemson. All my children went to Clemson. We love Clemson. It's been great to us, and we love and there's this there's this feeling that you always want to give back to um, to an institution that you yeah. love that's been so good to you. And I said, well, I, I, you know, and I met with uh, a couple of the trustees, and they said, no, listen, you ought to ride this thing out. If this is there's not a really strong, obvious internal candidate. I remember at the time said so they're looking to try to branch out, maybe get a little different type of a candidate, and. Y'all just ride through the process, and uh, so I did. I did. I went a long way, and thank goodness, thank goodness, <laughs> they hired Jim Clements, who was an amazing president. <laughs> and I know I was a distant whatever behind Jim Clements, but he it, it was a terrific experience to get get down to the last couple of folks. Wow, what an honor, though. Well, I don't know. And it, to imagine that two people actually thought you were the. You know, it's not like it was just somebody. One person came up with the idea, but there were two people yeah. who said. You may be the guy. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was uh, it was humbling at least, and uh, in retrospect, it was they, the trustees made the wise decision that they did in getting uh, President Clements. And um, but it was a terrific opportunity, yeah. and it was fun to 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 at least out of a sense of obligation to an organization I truly love. If if I felt like I could, if they felt like that I could contribute and give back. Then go for it. I mean, you know, I would have been selfish. I felt like had I not at least said, "All right, if you feel like I, there's something in me and Spence Taylor that could, I, heck, let's go for it." You yeah. Know, so. Yeah. Now, were you the first one in your family to go to Clemson, and then it led to everybody no, else? Oh gosh, or? my my fam- my my father finished Clemson in '49. Oh, your dad went to Clemson. Okay, I missed. My that mom part. went to Converse, and then of course my older I have three siblings. They all went to Clemson. We're really boring. This is really, you know, we we and my wife went to Clemson. All her siblings went to Clemson. We bleed orange. It's I a, guess so. And uh, and do a lot of orange in those households. Yeah, it is. There's not a lot of fighting around uh, <laughs> around the Clemson Carolina. You know, we we're pretty aligned. In yeah, terms yeah, of, I know, can imagine. So it's all good. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm sure you've worked on some projects. Let's kind of uh, come back around to the leaders in health. What yeah. kind of projects 
Because you've been a so you you started the leaders in health when we started it shortly uh, about, about about December of well December of nineteen is when we really got cranking up. We were working under the the name of of of, of another name, but it's mm-hmm. in in. But we got the group together in earnest, uh, and it was the same group that started the medical school. And we said, look, let's work on projects. Our earliest clients were the American Board of Surgery in Philadelphia, which I have a, a, a long relationship with, and we helped redo their governance structure. Which for you them. served on that board, right? I served on the board for 11 years and okay. was chair of the board uh, for a, a little over a year. And then uh, we helped them redo their governance structure, which was a major task, and that was that was a and, and got them rocking and rolling. It, it was a it was a, a process that started when I was chair of the board, and then moved on, and, and kept me retained us as, as for that. The Medical University of South Carolina was a client. They've been they were we worked uh, on various projects. The the North the North Greenville Emergency Room project right now that's in front of uh, County Council. That that we had the honor to be able to facilitate that. And again, Sean, it's it's very similar. It's like the medical school. It's uh. It's putting together disparate folks, folks that maybe wouldn't come together, whether it be you know MUSC for telehealth and Bon Secours for the the actual hospital in the county. I mean that's like that's a that's a, trying to get that's like um, get them in the same room talking in the same direction. Yeah, but that's what we did, and we've got a proposal, um, and something I think is going to happen in North Greenville. Mm-hmm. So that was a, that's a project that we're very proud of. And then our biggest passion is uh, let's let's reestablish the voice of the physician, independent physician. We've got to do something to at least provide a, a voice for the local physician on behalf of the doctor-patient relationship. I think all the docs now work for health systems. I think from a leadership perspective, most of the health systems have gone very strongly towards administrative leadership. And I think being able to restore back the physician voice through a partnership arrangement so that doctors are working with hospitals, not working for hospitals. And, mm-hmm. and uh, that's our passion. So we've got a couple of projects we're working on uh, worked a little bit with MUSC, but uh, and now uh, with some other folks coming in that will be probably in the next three months, we'll have a, a rollout of a fairly big uh, project, we think, that would be worth talking about in the future for sure around around a physician, independent physician group. So we're excited about that. So if you had to describe what your vision for the group is, what would that be? It, it would be creating a, a sustainable leadership team that puts the doctor-patient relationship first that is working with the hospitals, not for the hospitals, not against the hospitals, but working with the hospitals, the payers and the university, all for the benefit of the patients. At the end of the day, it's you guys, it's the patients yeah. that are the boss. And we seem to, you know, it's not, it's easy to get, take your eye off the ball. I totally get it. When you, you know, the Greenville Health System was had, had almost $3 billion in annual operating revenue. It was a massive company I was president of. And, and it's easy to get your, take your eye off the fact that really, at the end of the day, it's about did the patient in the emergency room was somebody kind to the patient in the emergency room. That I mean, that's, or was did somebody have to sit in the emergency room bleeding or have sick? And I mean, you know, and and you've got to make that the center of everything you do. And it's not just everybody. It, it sounds trite. The patients are the center. It's the doctor-patient relationship. That yeah. is that is the nucleus that runs healthcare. And if we don't have a healthy doctor-patient relationship, you need a healthy set of doctors, and the doctors need to be empowered to make the right decisions for their patients, unencumbered by an administrator or unencumbered by an insurance company to some degree or the government. You know, remember, Medicare's, what, 65% of uh, the payers. So, so, you know, so the doctor is the poor, is, the, is, is, the, is where the needle hits the vinyl in the old turntable, if anybody remembers turntables. That's, that's the doctor-patient relationship. And the doctor has to be empowered to make the right decision or the whole thing comes apart eventually. And we truly believe that. And that's, 
That's our goal. We're going to try to empower, empower physicians to do the right thing for their patients. Well, that sounds like a great vision for a great organization. Uh, when you think about the impact that you and your group will have on just the level of care that is available in the upstate, which we feel is one of the best kept secrets in the country. The yeah, upstate is, it, it, we are very blessed. We have great hospitals. We really do. We have great hospitals. Yeah. And we have a lot of talent. But I do think we, we lack leadership. So this will be an opportunity for us to align them all towards a, a bigger vision that will make us all better is our hope. Well, Dr. Taylor, I really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been great. Very insightful. Well, thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity. It's been a, a great conversation. Thanks so much for having us. Unusually Successful is a forthright records production hosted by Sean Dipple. Season 2 is sponsored by Sharp Business Systems of South Carolina. If you want to hear more, follow us on social media, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and tell a friend. Thank you for helping us support the growing economy of upstate South Carolina.